welcome back to 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Dan Turan, co-founder and CEO of Managed by Q. Dan is an old classmate from college who was a great resource to me when I first was deciding to join a startup, and it's been inspiring to follow his journey thus far. Managed by Q has been lauded by publications such as the New York Times for its innovative business plan, which invests in all employees by providing full benefits to both hourly and full-time staff alike. But now it's time to hear from Dan himself and to learn more about how he turned into such a unique entrepreneur. Managed by Q, uh, and kind of our vision is building an operating system for for offices for sort of the built environment and, and kind of what that looks like uh, today is sort of a, a platform for managing a commercial space. So uh, everything from cleaning and maintenance to IT, yoga, catering, whatever uh, is bookable and manageable through through our platform. And so we just basically make it easy for an office manager to manage physical space. Uh, and there's a few different facets to the business. Um, we have uh, Q Services, which is our in-house service company, which now employs over a thousand people across four cities, New York, uh, Chicago, LA, and San Francisco. And then we have the Q Marketplace, where we're connecting local service providers to, to, to office managers. So how did you originally come up with this, since I know you were in, in this space before? Uh, yeah, I did not um, dream of running a commercial services firm <laughs> as a child. Um, yeah, so, the way that we really kind of got uh, stumbled upon this kind of like opportunity space was looking at um, residential property management. So my my co-founder uh, and I were working together at a firm called Prehype. We were both working uh, sort of doing new venture development as product designers. And uh, it's sort of, uh, we kept always coming back to this topic of the buildings that we lived in. And he lived in this very nice condo in Carroll Gardens. Uh, I lived in low-income housing in South Williamsburg, uh, where I still live. Um, and we both had the same sort of persistent issues with how the space was managed and, and operated. Uh, and we just kept coming back to this idea of what if there was an operating system that could run the real world with the reliability of software, because um, we were obviously very used to, to the reliability of, of software uh, in you know, designing interfaces for, for web and for mobile. Um, and that sort of like uh, sparked kind of like thinking kind of more academically around like what would it look like uh, if you were to arrive at sort of that uh, level of, of reliability, uh, you know, what are all the things that would have to go right for that to happen? And you start kind of at the people and work backwards. Uh, and so we, we started out in the residential space. Uh, we spent a couple of weeks pitching to condo and co-op boards. Um, the benefit of having sort of design founders is uh, we didn't build anything. We just designed what it would look like, and we're sort of pitching vaporware. We realized that residential wasn't going to be a great market, and we were getting a lot of, um, actually, the office manager at the space we were working out of, BarkBox office, uh, kept asking us if she could participate in our, in our beta. Um, at the time, we, uh, you know, had didn't, didn't have an interest in working in, in office, uh, and so we kind of kept putting it off, and then after banging our head against the wall, uh, trying to pitch to condo and co-op boards, who are bad customers for a number of reasons, uh, we went back to Whitney, the office manager, and said, like, could you introduce us to, to every office manager you know? 
pitched to maybe like 25 of them and like 15 swipe their credit card on the spot to, to start service and we sort of realized that we had a lot better fit there yeah um and the rest has been sort of has unfolded from there and really getting to know that customer really well so what's with the name where did that come from uh it was actually so it's it's sort of a nod to to uh, James Bond's Q, uh, who's sort of always in the background, kind of providing uh, the the gadgets to make to make Bond sort of effortlessly fly. Um, but it was really my my co-founder's uh, uh, name, uh, and uh, you know I've learned to love it. So I was going to ask you this later, but since you keep bringing him up, tell me a little bit about your co-founder. So you met at pre-hype, but how did you know you wanted to start a company together? Um, so we had worked together on some client projects at Prehype, and uh, he's a super skilled uh, visual designer, product designer, um, and and also just you know super smart uh, and like kind of we share a bias to action, and and he really took the the first leap at putting a lot of work into designing sort of the early prototypes uh, for Q. Uh, and I always, you know, in the projects we worked on, I always managed a lot more of sort of operationalizing things, uh, sort of the go-to-market and like getting stuff uh, up and running. And so, uh, it, you know, at the time, you know, we certainly didn't imagine the scale that we're at today. It was just another like fun thing that we were going to work on together. Um, at the time, we were working on uh, a language learning app that was uh, later kind of spun into the News Corporation run by Dow Jones. Um, uh, that we had worked on for like, you know, six or nine months together. So I don't think we realized kind of the magnitude of what we were at the beginning of, and it just seemed like another fun opportunity to work together on something. Okay. I mean, did you ever look for certain qualities that you wanted in a co-founder or it just kind of just naturally flowed? I mean, I think, uh, you know, Saman and I uh, had a very kind of shared kind of core values and integrity and like both, you know, hardworking kind of uh, aligned in, in a worldview. And I think the skills, like having complementary skills is really important. And, um, you know, while I'm like pretty handy on, on UX, uh, uh, I'm not like a great pixel designer and Saman is like an incredibly strong visual designer. And so he you know, could really produce these like amazing high fidelity, uh, you know, not just like interfaces, but mocks of like entire experiences. He's an incredible storyteller. Uh, and really helped us kind of like uh, nail the brand story really early on. Um, well, I kind of took on a lot of the more uh, sort of nuts and bolts of sales operations, uh, financing and all that. So do you think the, like the branding though is more important for investors or for pitching your product considering that the software is only one component of what you offer? I mean, I think at, a, at the earliest stage, um, it's all about the narrative. You know, like the software is never great at the early stage, um, and it's all about sort of the story that you're telling to to customers, to early hires, to to investors. Um, you know, and investors, particularly when there is no data to look at, they're buying the story and the mm. people who are telling the story. And I think um, one of the things that Simon and I share is like you know a, a love of story and narrative. And I think we were able to to tell the story of like this vision for an operating system for the world. Uh, that for a while was going to look like a cleaning company. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that, that part wouldn't have been a sexy pitch. Uh, so, yeah, I think the narrative is super important early on. Okay, let's go back then to your early years. So what was your childhood like? like what do your parents do for a living? What's your family like? Uh, sure. So we moved around a lot. Um, lived in uh, Connecticut and then New Jersey 
and then uh, Los Angeles area, uh, and then moved back to New Jersey, uh, so bounced around a lot. Um, my mom was an executive at Johnson & Johnson. She was a vice president of market research at the end of her career, uh, and she sort of was a, a, a little bit ahead of her time in terms of like being a, a sort of a senior executive a woman in a, a Fortune 500 company, mm-hmm. and so she, I think, uh, has always been an inspiration to me and like broke a lot of uh, sort of ceilings. Um, and that, you know, she was the breadwinner in the family and that was like uh, atypical at the time. Um, maybe becoming it's a lot. Oh, it's still atypical, it's but yeah. It's still atypical. I mean, increasingly it's more normal, but it was, yeah, it was not normal when I was a kid. Uh, fortunately, it's more normal now. Um, my dad, uh, for most of my life, was a carpenter um, growing up and then when we were out in LA, uh, he hurt his back and wasn't able to, to do carpentry, so he moved into into sales first of construction materials and then uh, and then CPGs. But was carpenter most of most of my life. So did you have to kind of restart every time you moved, and did you get used to that sort of ambiguous lifestyle? Yeah, I mean, we after I was in middle school, we stayed sort of in one place, so I moved mm-hmm. a lot more when I was younger. Um, I think you just don't notice as much, um, but I've always been. Uh, you know, fairly adaptable. I actually think I was a lot more outgoing when I was a kid, so it was easier. I probably wouldn't like it as much now. Um, but yeah, it was never, uh, it never really phased me that much. Yeah, something like you're just making new friends and play outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you have any leadership roles when you were younger that you really stick out to you? Um, leadership roles? Um, I sort of like, uh, I didn't get very engaged uh, until really like late in high school in sort of anything that mattered. Uh, you know, I was more likely to be like, uh, smoking cigarettes in the parking lot, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and getting in trouble. Uh, but then as uh, sort of college drew near and it became clear that there was like pretty big dissonance between like the way I was living my life and the, the life that I thought that I was going to have. Actually, my brother, uh, sort of like kicked me in the ass and was like, you're, not going to get into college if you don't Older start brother. doing stuff yeah okay. um so I you know later in high school started kind of focusing on academics and um I actually uh, was an EMT and firefighter and went through all of the training for that and oh, wow. uh and so there's some kind of inherent leadership roles and in, in taking on that responsibility and so I did that I was like 17 and 18 until I went off to college um and then at college is when I sort of like I started to kind of come into my own and I was uh, president of my class uh, freshman year at Hopkins um, was captain of the rugby team by the time I graduated so started taking on sort of more leadership roles um, I started a, uh, a sustainable infrastructure program at Hopkins which actually still runs today we interviewed someone who's currently the student director there which is really cool oh, that's um, great. basically it's one of the most robust programs in the U.S. for uh, any university to fund sustainable infrastructure programs. So anything with a five to seven year simple payback um, gets financed ahead of their kind of regular deferred maintenance schedule. How did you think of that when you were at Hopkins? Uh, Because my brother was a senior at Hopkins at the time. He's a chemical engineer and his senior design project was uh, basically a biofuel recapture program to turn like the the waste vegetable oil from the the cafeterias into um, fuel to preheat the boilers for the school's heating system. And it was like a great program uh, that they designed and it totally would have saved the school money and there was no way to fund it. And I was uh, the president of my class and I was like, 
this is stupid. Uh, like, <laughs> there should be a way to fund this, and there should be a way to fund any program that like students are coming up with that can actually be reducing the school's carbon footprint, saving the school money. Uh, and so I took it to the student government and then to, um, you know, eventually sort of all the way to the president of the university and looked at schools like, um, I think at the time, like Harvard and MIT were doing these uh, these sustainable investment funds, which were kind of fixed pools of capital to invest in infrastructure that would pay back with the savings. Um, and Hopkins went so far as to say, like, we're not going to limit the amount that we'll invest. If you can prove that there's five to seven years that we'll pay back, we'll put it ahead of the deferred maintenance budget. And so, uh, yeah, it's been super successful in, in funding a lot of really great student projects since. Seems like a big transition, though, from, what did you say, smoking in parking lots in high school to, you know, creating your own sustainable thing in, in college. So do you think you're, so you're only have an older brother, just the two of you? Mm-hmm. And I actually didn't realize he was at Hopkins also. That's interesting. But do you think he had a big impact into kind of changing who you were? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's like sort of the, I describe him as, he's a, a PhD chemist, uh, chemical engineer, and runs a battery company very different than what I do. And I would describe him as like the most intellectually honest person I know. Like he, he doesn't have the ability to like, stretch the truth, uh, you know, sort of like the facts are the facts and they fall where they fall. And so I think he sort of illuminated to me that like I was sort of buying my own narrative fallacy uh, that just like wasn't really consistent with reality. And if I wanted to have certain outcomes that like that I needed to be investing uh, my time and energy and skills into things that would contribute to towards those outcomes rather than just expecting like, yeah, it's going to happen. So kind of taking control of your life though rather than would see what happens to you yeah exactly and thinking that like uh you know the reality is that like being uh you know smart or well-spoken or whatever like doesn't really count for shit if you don't like, <laughs> if you don't like also work your ass off uh and so it was kind of like I'd gotten pretty far just kind of like being smart enough but then like I learned I need to kind of turn the corner and start really working do you think you instill these values now in your company yeah I think so I mean I think any company uh, any founder-led company, like the culture and the values are a total reflection of the founder. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, we actually just had an offsite this week where we were talking about sort of like um, continuing to, to refine sort of our principles um, and like our leadership principles as a company. And uh, there's definitely a lot of me in there. Um, which, like what? Um, I mean, I think like, you know, one of the my <laughs> sort of uh, hallmarks is I'm like never uh, never I aim to never be the smartest guy in the room uh, usually I'm successful in that endeavor uh, <laughs> but I am like very resolved that like I'll never lose because I didn't work hard enough like I you know uh, and so like creating a culture where people understand that like if we are going to fail it's not going to be because we didn't work hard enough uh, mm-hmm. it's like becomes a very high, te- high integrity culture where it's about everyone performing to their level best, not because somebody told them to or because their manager said so, but because they're intrinsically motivated to play at the highest level of their capability. And I think, like, that creates a really fun and, like, kind of exciting environment to work in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, like, a pretty big one. Transparency is, is pretty huge here. Um, I think our view on transparency is it just speeds things up when everyone has the facts. Like, everyone's well-intentioned. Um, everyone wants the same thing. So... We don't need to like put spin on things. We can just kind of like put the facts on the table uh, and expect that if it's not great news, people are going to understand that we all want the same thing. And if it is great news, like they'll interpret it the same way that we do. 
Um, uh, optimism is another big value of ours. Like uh, the stuff that we're doing is just too hard to be successful if you have a shitty attitude. And so, uh, you know, we think of like uh, optimism as like the attitude that favors opportunity. Um, you know, we still might fail, but uh, we might as well like have fun and have a fucking good attitude about it because an optimistic uh, <laughs> New Yorker, I love it. Yeah, well, <laughs> you got to. I mean, you know, the business—it's a hard business. It's like a twenty-four hour business. There's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're doing tens of thousands of sessions in a week and you have an error rate of less than one percent, you still have hundreds of problems, yeah. <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, you have to really like. Uh, you got to keep a good attitude and you just have to really like, uh, enjoy the work. Uh, Do you think that's something your parents told you about when you were younger, just to be positive or is that something you just kind of learned over time? Um, I don't think it was anything expressly. I think I spent a lot of my life being pretty negative, uh, and not realizing like that, that just wasn't like helping me get you know further, uh, in life. And so mm-hmm. I think it was something I sort of figured out on my own, but I mean, my parents are both like, very positive people and like you know they're the the types of parents that you know definitely uh you know told me I could be whatever I wanted to be when I grew up and believed it what um, do you want to be when you grow up I don't know <laughs> <laughs> but they were open to whatever no no childhood dreams of you know besides the EMT and firefighter no I mean you know I earlier in my career I was much more interested in like working in the public sector like I, I worked in campaign politics right out of college and like I worked at a law firm and thought I wanted to go to law school uh I think everyone went through that though I thought I wanted to go to law school too yeah and I think like you know I you know the first campaign I volunteered for was Obama's first presidential campaign and like uh it was a time when anything felt possible and like you know it was an exciting time to work in politics uh and then you know you fast forward a couple years and you know everything sort of ground to a halt after uh you know first couple of years of the administration so it became less and less uh did you ever enchanting. think about though you said you mentioned high school kind of being a little rebellious but college just seemed like an innate thing it wasn't something you ever considered not doing um that's a good question no I think I knew I needed to uh but I uh I got very lucky that I got into Hopkins it was like uh there's actually there was an interviewer his name is uh Mark Butt and he when I, I think it was after I won the, the presidency uh, freshman year, uh, the class president race, he emailed me uh, and he worked in admissions and he was like, could you, uh, could you come by admissions? Like, we'd love to meet you. Um, and uh, and I, I came in and he introduced himself and he said, you know, when you were applying, I was the reader for the state of New Jersey and we all have a couple of people that are like, we take it to the chopping block that like, we have to really vigorously defend. And like, I really, you know, spoke out for your candidacy, and I just wanted to say, like, I'm really glad that I did. Does it make you feel good or bad that he's asked to speak out for you? I mean, listen, I wasn't, like, an amazing student. I didn't have amazing test scores, uh, but I came in and, you know, uh, I wrote well, so I think my essays were good, and I, I was an unconventional candidate. I did a lot of, like, you know, the EMT firefighter stuff, uh, and so it took someone who was willing to say, like, this, you know, which I think... Uh, it certainly changed my life, and I feel like there's, you know, we all know that grades and test scores are probably not the best indicator of a yeah. future performance. Um, so, I mean, I didn't feel either way about it other than, like, grateful, because yeah. uh, and it was nice for him to connect. It is funny. I always think there is, I'm a big Kurt Vonnegut fan. He has that 
religion in Cat's Cradle about there's uh-huh. like five percent. Yeah, Vulcanism. I was thinking about Cat's Cradle. There's it's one of my really, favorite books. <laughs> me too. And that's like the only religion I've ever identified with. There's about like five to seven people in your caress that change your life. So I wonder if he's one of yours. Could be. Um, it's so <laughs> funny you brought that up. Uh, we're we're moving up to the eleventh floor and we're building out this library. And I was thinking uh, that it'd be nice if every single person on the staff do- donated one book that was like their book. And I was yeah. thinking, what would mine be? And I was it was between like how to win friends and influence people and Cat's Cradle. <laughs> Dale Carnegie. Uh, and Cat's, Cat's Cradle <laughs> so was like funny. my. It was my. Uh, first favorite book. Uh, I used to have a copy of it that I brought with me everywhere, and then it sort of disintegrated. Um, I left one of mine in Nicaragua with notes everywhere. Uh, but actually, my first blog post was titled So It Goes, just my homage to Kurt Vonnegut. But anyway, this is about you. Um, and so I'm curious, after you worked on the campaign, you know, when did you first start thinking about entrepreneurship? I know that you worked at Arts Call, so was it really transitioning then that you thought, I could do this on my own? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, entrepreneurship takes a lot of forms, and there are people who work in big companies or in government that, like, are entrepreneurial, uh, uh, but I didn't really get, and that, so I didn't get exposed to kind of, like, the purest form of entrepreneurship until I, I worked at Artsicle, uh, and it certainly didn't become, like, so in vogue until, like, you know, around the time that we were graduating from college, um, and I think what sort of happened was... Uh, I've always, like, forget entrepreneurship, whatever, it's like, it's a, a tag to throw on something, but, like, what I've always been after is um, making an impact. Like, I want to be, I want to see, uh, like, the work that I do as, like, a reflection of my values, like, in the world. Like, that's, like, I think that's what everyone sort of at their core longs for, is, like, to see the impact of their work, because mm-hmm. otherwise, like, it's just toil. Um, and I'm not, like, super money motivated. Uh, and I think, like, a lot of great entrepreneurs aren't. They're motivated by doing something. Um, and at, at first I thought I did that, I could do that through politics, and then I got so jaded that like nothing ever changes. And then I thought like, well maybe law is an interesting avenue. And I, I, it was interesting work I was doing. I worked with Aaron Brockovich. We bring environmental cases. Oh, wow. um, but everything moves so slow. And it could be five to 10 years with one case that's still just like, just slowly making its way through the courts. And I thought like, well, you know, maybe I should try something different. This is like 2010, uh, you know, New York tech was starting to kind of blossom. I knew some people uh, that were like kind of making things happen. Uh, And it wasn't like they needed a big uh, infrastructure or, you know, they didn't need authority. They didn't need money. They didn't need power. They were just like building stuff. And it was uh, in their pocket of the world. It was like starting to move things and change things. And then I met... Scott and Alex, the, the founders at Art School, and I sort of loved what they were doing. Um, and they were hiring for a first employee to come on and sort of like build up the supply side of the marketplace. And, you know, first employees, I was just sort of a utility player. Uh, and, you know, they gave me a shot, and I learned a hell of a lot. And, we, you know, we built a pretty, pretty cool business together. Now, how do you, you know, go from what you learned there to really making your company not a replica of someone else's, but your own? Uh, you mean like in the case of Q? Yeah, like, you know, you, you obviously learned a lot at art school, but when you're starting your company, how did you make it more uniquely you or make the culture about what you and your founder are about rather than, you know, replicating your past experiences? Uh, I don't think you have a choice. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, you spend, you spend every waking minute thinking about it and like, you, you know, you pour yourself into it. So it would be hard to have a, a company any company that has a culture that's genuine, you know, uh, like, 
I don't I think it would be very hard for it to be anything other than like a real reflection of the founder um, just because like uh, you eat sleep and drink it like you know uh, at this point uh, you know we're like three years in uh, you know I don't have like a ton of friends outside of the company now because like I hired a lot of my friends mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I lost touch with a lot of them so you know it just becomes sort of your universe so what do you think then is the biggest change from you know getting seed funding through Series C? Uh, it, it's honestly like it's not that different. I you know, I always, I would not have believed if me three years ago like asked me today like what's it like? Uh, I probably would describe it very much in the way that like me three years ago would have described it like you know, the scale has changed and the stakes have changed and, like, there's more zeros on everything, but, like, it doesn't feel that different. And, like, uh, and maybe it's just me, but, like, I still obsess about the details the way that I used to and, like, uh, you know, we still, you know, we're a big company now, but I'll still go out in the field and clean offices if I need to. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that stuff, like, hasn't changed, just, like, the numbers have changed. Um, there's nuance to managing a bigger organization. Um you know, it become you can't just like. There's like the company is too big that if I shouted, everyone could hear me. You know, like so. So <laughs> so we have to come up with better uh, systems to scale communication in the company. But it's not wildly different. Um, I mean, from an outsider's perspective, sure. But like, as the guy, the one guy who's been here the whole time, it's still, I don't know, it's still fun and exciting, and like it still feels my like barometer is like as long as it still feels like early days then like I'm happy and, and it does so what is success going to mean for you if it's not money motivated I mean making an impact I think is like uh, is pretty critical and there's a lot of different ways that we do that but you know one that's pretty obvious is we have a reputation for being you know a incredibly worker first company yeah um, I read about that too yeah and the stories that you hear from people who uh, you know never had their own health insurance before or were able to get out of a shelter because they had a reliable income or uh, never thought in a million years they would be uh, a shareholder in a company Um, and the the sense of pride that that gives them you know that stuff uh, it's meaningful to me like it brings me pride but I also think uh, there's a profound impact to like really catalyze change in a meaningful way you know if we have a massive public outcome that we all hope for we're talking about uh an incredible redistribution of wealth to our field operators and we modeled out uh, we wanted everybody who's working at the company in the first five years uh, if we have the exit that we think we can within a range of outcomes to be able to uh, put a down payment on a home in New York City or uh, put a kid through college and so like we're looking at like we backed into these numbers and so we designed the option program if we're successful it's like I don't know this is maybe is a bold statement but like could be like one of the largest redistributions of wealth in the history of the world to people like from a very different income class that otherwise would have had no shot. Uh, and that to me is like super motivating. Um, and it's not, we're not the first people to do it. You know, like Howard Schultz did an amazing job in their stories mm-hmm. of these baristas that like, you know, in some sense there's an opportunity as a private actor to, sh- you know, short circuit cycle poverty in a meaningful way. Uh, and I'd rather like chase that than go, you know, I don't know, sit in committee meetings in the office. <laughs> no, I think that's great. I mean, I think that's the most authentic answer so far I've heard. Um, it definitely tells a lot about how you design the company. 
Uh, Kate, so we're at the end, but I want to ask some a few fun questions before we close out. So. I'm not that fun, so. No, you're very stoic. If only, if only people could see how serious you were and you're all black. Um, okay, so what products or startups are you big advocate for that you just find yourself telling people about? Um, I don't know that I advocate for a lot. Well, I just told my dad he should open an account on Coinbase. Uh, <laughs> I think they have... I think it's a really cool business. Also, like, beautiful product. Uh, Stripe, I'm a huge fan of. I think uh, Patrick and John Collison are, you know, geniuses. Uh, mm -hmm. I only recently, like, I listened to Patrick's defense and podcast and was blown away. Uh, and Stripe is just an amazing business, an amazing product. We're happy customers. Um, what else? Slack has obviously had some downtime today, but uh, they are obviously, like, taking over the world uh, in a... In a pretty fascinating and nuanced way. I think there's a, like, a lot that can be learned from that. Um, you'll notice I'm naming like almost exclusively B2B companies. Yeah, well, that, that's actually what I find, though, from I think the last people were talking to me about like MailChimp and like all those servers they use. But, that, I mean, that is your day-to-day -day life, so that makes sense. Yeah, MailChimp um, is a great business, too. And if you could interview one founder, who would you want to interview? Ooh, that's a good question. Um... Know a lot of founders, so I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, not to be like cliche, but like, I think, uh, well, to be dead, also. I've had a few people that were, you know, living or dead. Um, I just listened to an amazing interview with Howard Schultz, but like, he's not a founder, he bought Starbucks. Yeah. Um, give me a second. <laughs> I mean, like, Jeff Bezos is, like, unbelievable, um, and so I think it'd be interesting to sit down with him. Um, Mike Bloomberg, I've had a chance to meet a few times, but, like, he's the kind of guy that, like, you can just tell that, you know, uh, every every sentence he utters, you're, like, learning something profound. <laughs> uh, spending time with Mike Bloomberg would be cool. Um, Jim Senegal from Costco, I think, is, like, uh, is, is pretty inspirational. He's another guy who, like, uh, through kind of numerous economic downturns, like, refused to cut benefits and, you know, was very s strong on, on, uh, mm -hmm. on how they treat their workers. Um, yeah, those are those are a few. Great. Well, way to pick a hot thing so long. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much for uh, coming to visit us in, uh, in New York. Yeah, definitely. and that's it for this week's episode of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.